a podcast designed to help heal and support the El Paso community. Hello, I'm your host, Mariana Sierra, Outreach Coordinator for the El Paso United Family Resiliency Center, a program of United Way of El Paso County. We are dedicated to serve those who were impacted directly or indirectly by August 3rd. Join us on the journey to long-term recovery as we have honest conversations with local leaders, mental health specialists, and fellow El Pasoans who share their stories and expertise. We feature topics that influence and impact the vitality and resilience of our community. We are El Paso United, and together we heal. Juntos sanamos. Dear listener, before we begin, a note of warning. The topic we're about to explore contains a mention of the mass casualty event and a description of the events that unfolded thereafter. This episode may not be suitable for everyone. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of United and Resilient. Thank you so much for being here. As you may know, the El Paso United Family Resiliency Center is committed to reducing the stigmas that surround mental health and provide education that can help community members navigate their own healing journey. For this episode, we'll discuss how we can provide support and guidance to a loved one who's dealing with mental illness. How can we start the conversation in our dinner tables without being invasive? And how can we take care of ourselves while taking care of others? Today, we have an amazing guest, Isidro Torres, Executive Director for National Alliance on Mental Illness, or NAMI for short, at El Paso, Texas. Isidro, thank you so much for being here today. Welcome to United and Resilient. Thank you, Marina, so much for having me. Isidro, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and the work that you do with NAMI? Yes, well, yes, I'm the Executive Director of NAMI El Paso. I've been um, part of NAMI El Paso since 2015. I started off as a volunteer, um, then joined their Board of Directors, and in 2016, I stepped off. Uh, to become part of staff, and I've grown in, in different positions um, over the years, and I'm now honored and privileged uh, to be serving as the executive director. That's wonderful. That's, I mean, that's so much growth. Congratulations on that, Isidro. So can you tell us a little bit about what NAMI does for our community? What is it that you guys do, um, you know, as a local uh, community organization for El Paso? Yeah, so NAMI El Paso is a local affiliate of the National Alliance on Mental Illness. Uh, here in El Paso, we are celebrating 35 years this year. And so where we started and what NAMI was meant to be from the beginning and continues to be is to be a support system for individuals living with mental health conditions and their families. And so 35 years ago, two families came together in the waiting room of Thomas and Hospital, which is now UMC, and were there in for their children who were going through a mental health crisis and mental health issues. And they realized together collectively that there was not enough support in El Paso at that time to support family members who were going through this journey and support those who, who were living with mental health conditions. And so they came together. One of them knew about NAMI from, from a Midwestern state that they were at before and decided to bring it here. And so from them, from then, NAMI was, you know, in garages and living rooms, in libraries at the El Paso Psychiatric Hospital um, and has grown into what we have now. And so we have an array of different classes 
presentations and support groups where we work to educate families, educate individuals living with mental health conditions, provide awareness throughout our community and, and eliminate the stigma that surrounds mental health and just provide general support from individuals who have shared experiences. And so we're all about storytelling, sharing experiences at NAMI so we can educate, support each other as we go through our respective mental health journeys. That's amazing. And that's why NAMI right now is the perfect, perfect um, organization to talk to because of the topic that we have prepared for you all. Uh, we want to talk a little bit about how to support a loved one that's dealing with a mental illness. And we'll get a little bit into that a little on. Um, but I do want to talk about our great partnership as well. NAMI is one of our wonderful community partners at the FRC. So Isidro, can you tell us a little bit about this partnership that we have and the collaboration that we do together for, for the FRC and for our community? Definitely. You know, we're really grateful to be partners with the FRC. Um, and we're grateful that we get to stand alongside you all in our community as we continue to heal from the tragedy of August 3rd. And so through our partnership, NAMI is providing presentations and classes, um, you know, our regular presentations and classes in, in hopes that those who, who may have been impacted by their mental health and are experiencing, um, you know, different challenges of, as we heal uh, can learn a little bit more about mental health, how they can be supportive of their family members, be supportive of themselves, and be supportive of the community, um, again, as we we continue to look forward and, and move past this, this tragedy that has deeply impacted us um, here in our community. Right, and we're very, very thankful because a lot of the things that NAMI does as an antitraditional therapy, those support groups to be able to have someone that that can tell you, hey, I know what you're dealing with, like I've been there, is so helpful and it makes your healing journey a little bit better, right? It, like it makes you really realize that you're not alone. So um, to get started, Isidro, throughout the course of this podcast, I've always asked, you know, our guests, mental health specialists or leaders, how to, how to provide support to a loved one that is experiencing mental illness. Um, however, I soon realized in those conversations that that question deserved its own podcast, its own episode, because it can be a little bit more complex than that, right? It's not just like a one answer fits all. It can be a little bit more complex. So that would be my first question, Isidro. What are the first steps to take? How can we properly provide support to a loved one that is dealing with a mental illness? Yeah, you know, and, and like you mentioned, it's so complex and not one answer fits all. And each of us, each of us has a different journey with when it comes to um, with being, you know, having a loved one with a mental health condition or or experiencing mental illness. And so, you know, for us, I think some of the first steps that we describe and, and we think about is just understanding where they're at, where you're at when it is coming to this mental health condition. Are they receiving treatment? Are they on a treatment plan? What are what are the supports that they're receiving already? And what additional supports do they need? Um, and just taking, you know, taking a, a temperature check of the situation and everybody's at, you know, it is there's no doubt that as a loved one, it is definitely difficult, you know, to there's a lot of grieving that goes into it um, when the loved one is, is diagnosed or experiencing a mental illness. And, you know, the entire unit's affected when it comes to it, no doubt. 
And so it's just a matter of taking care of yourself, figuring out where you're going and what you need. You're right. And it can be so difficult. Um, You know, coming out from an experience, I used to be very close to someone that was dealing with depression. And it was just so hard, right? Because you love that person so much and you want to take them out from that suffering and from that pain, but you don't know how to go about it. It can even affect you. Like you said, it affects the whole family unit. So my next question would be, Cedro, how can we start the conversation without being invasive or overstepping? Once you realize that, hey, maybe maybe this, um, you know, my loved one is dealing with depression or anxiety, but they haven't realized it yet in themselves. So how can we start the conversation coming from a very loving point? Yeah, you know, I think one of the first things is, again, we what we talk about is we want to make sure we check where we're at. You know, we want to make sure that we're in a place of uh, that we're ready to have this conversation with our loved one, because there's no doubt that there's sometimes frustration, there's sadness, there's there's fear of what's happening. And all of those feelings are valid. There's nothing wrong with having those feelings. We just got to make sure that we're we're understanding where we're at with those feelings and how we're bringing them into the conversations we want to have with our loved one. And of course, communication is key to making sure that we continue to offer support for each other when it comes to these relationships and, and partner with each other as, as we go through whatever the mental health journey is. And so, you know, we want to be clear. We want to be direct with them. We don't want to give long-winded explanations, you know, as someone with mental illness, the could be a lot to handle. So we want to be clear, direct, right to the point. Um, We want to keep, you know, it's simple. We don't want to overload anybody with two information, cover one topic at a time, go one direction at a time, take it step by step. You know, it's not going to be fixed overnight. You know, there's, it's not going to be handled overnight. It's a process. And so be willing to write out that process, however long it is. Um, And we don't want to be, and the important part about checking where you're at is because you don't want to get in arguments. Sometimes these conversations are hard. You know, they're, they're not easy conversations. And so we want to keep it as calm, you know, and, and simple as possible. We don't want to be critical of this person. We don't want to make accusations of our loved one. We want to make sure that we're, you know, we're having this conversation. We're putting everything out there um, and keeping the stimulation level as low as possible. Um, and you know what, if sometimes maybe they're not ready for that conversation and you have to understand that, you know, maybe, you know, you're noticing you're having this conversation with them. They seem a little withdrawn. They're not listening to you and you say, you know what, I, right now, maybe it's not the t- good time for this conversation. Let's step back for a moment. We'll come back to this later um, and just give them time, you know, and continue to practice on that communication. It's definitely going to take practice. And, you know, if just, you know, some things are going to fall through the cracks, right? They're not going to get everything you throw at them. And we also have to be very understanding of that. You know, we've got to remember, <clears throat> we may have to be repetitive. We may need to have these conversations over and over again. And that's just part of the process. That's something we do as part of the journey. Um, and it's part of uh, the the family members and just you know again be be nice be there you know you'd love this person remember what you're there for and be remember that you're there to support them um and and that'll be important and and do your best in, in understanding where they're coming from perception is, is key and, and communication is key and i think one of the one important um thing as well Isidro, is that um to give them 
to to make them feel that they are still in control of the situation, right? When you approach a person, say that, you know, you you see that maybe they're, you know, they're depressed and you wanna you wanna help, but not take control of the situation, not tell the person, oh, you're gonna do this and this and that, you're going to this therapist, and after that, you're gonna join this activity. Really give that person options and to make them feel that they're still in control of the situation. I, I, in my own healing journey, I found that that's that's very beneficial. Um, however, I do understand, and at the FRC, we always say, you know, and I know Nami does too. You know, we understand that there's a stigma surrounding mental health, and this is why we're doing this, right? This is why we're having this conversation. So, um, you know, in our community, there's a strong stigma surrounding mental health because we, you know, we have this sort of education. So, what happens when you approach someone and there's an initial rejection or conflict? Like, how can you go about that initial conversation, how can you go about it as a loved one? Yeah, definitely. I mean, even especially when we talk about our community, there's no doubt that coming to terms to maybe having a diagnosis or understanding that there may be behavioral issues for individuals is hard, right? That that could take some time. And when we when we know as a family member, hey, there's been a change, something's happened, let's find help, let's do something about it that could really put them in, in a place of defensiveness. They're saying, no, I'm okay, I'm fine, leave me alone. And that's definitely hard. And, and that's also part of the grieving process of, of coming to terms and understanding that, you know, someone you love is going through something really hard and you can't just wave a wand and make you go away. Um, there's a process to that and, and that's difficult. And I think we just have to be patient um, and, and do our best to continue to provide communication and support. And like, you know, I talked about earlier is we don't want to make accusations. We don't want to be, you know, intense about it, even though there's there's so many feelings behind it. Um, and, and hopefully within time and within communication, um, conflict resolves itself. You know, we, we work to um, provide as many solutions as we can Um and it's, you know, it's a long process, it's a long road, and, and there's no doubt that it it isn't easy. But hopefully with the continued communication, continued support, um, they'll come to terms with it. But again, we have to give them their space to come to terms with whatever's going on. And one of the things this, what you just said, reminds me, when I was dealing with something very similar to this, what helped me was writing everything down, you know, writing a letter to my loved one and say, hey, this is what I I, I perceive um, and I'm, I'm worried about you because I love you and I want to make sure I'm there for you. So I remember this question I asked and 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 this person was very thankful after he he recovered from his depression because I asked him. How can I help you? How do you want me to help? How do you want me to support you? How can I be there for you? So again, going back to giving them options, right? And making them feel that they are in control of the situation and what they're feeling. So now, Isidro, I want to ask you, why is it so important to have this initial conversations? Because I know, like, again, going back to the stigma that surrounds mental health, maybe a family member or a loved one doesn't want to face this, why is it so important to have this initial conversation with our loved one? Yeah, you know, and before before I get into the money, I want to 
talk about something that you just mentioned and that you just did so well that we actually teach in our classes. And it's the I statements. And you were talking about it and when you were writing this letter to you, to your loved one, to your friend. Um, and we use I statements a lot within our classes in ways of, you know, when we express negative feelings, you know, I get uncomfortable when this happens, or I would feel better if you didn't do this as much, you know, making a request, you know, I wish you, you put more effort into this, or I wish you would help with this, like, you know, I would be relieved if I also had support from you. And I, those I statements are very vital because again, we don't wanna make accusations of our loved one. We don't wanna put this much pressure on them because they're already going through so much. There's already a lot happening with them. Um, so I just wanted to touch on that because you you did it perfectly when you were t- describing it. Um, and it's something that we we definitely talk about in, all, in a lot of our classes and presentations about these I statements. But but you know this initial conversation, like you mentioned, there's there's so much stigma when it comes to mental health, and we don't know what's happening within our loved one's mind. You know, are they are they worried about being labeled crazy? Are they worried about you know this fear and shame that that they get comes with with having to come to terms with it? Are they you know do they feel alone? What's going on? And so when you have these initial conversations with your loved ones, what you're saying is, you know, it's okay not to be okay. It's okay what you're going through. And you're letting them know that you're there to support them and be there any way you can. And letting them know that they have someone who they can lean on as they they figure out, come to terms with what they're going through. And as they head towards recovery, you know, and there's, you know, while mental health conditions are common, there's no doubt that there's hope and there's recovery as possible. Um, and so by having these initial conversations, we're building the foundation for that and, and letting them know that you'll have their back as they go through it. Right, right. A lot of it is love and compassion, right? Love and compassion, a lot of it. And now I want to ask about this because like you said it's a whole family unit you know the whole family is affected or say I this this person of mine this friend of mine he was dealing with depression and all of the friend group was grieving with him you know all of the friend group was grieving with him so it can affect everyone so how can we guide other you know say household members to be patient and understanding or other friends or other loved ones how can we also provide you know that support and reassurance to other people who are dealing with the same thing yeah you know and I think it's also about having conversations with them, with other with other household members, whether it be, you know, the individual siblings or, you know, the other parent or um, the other, you know, people who they're in constant communication with. We don't want to make it seem as if we're talking behind their back, right? But we want to make sure that we're also communicating and being there for each other so that we can help them. You know, you can't help someone else if you don't help yourself first and so guiding them and letting them know how you're feeling using those i statements you know i feel that we can support him this way i feel that we can um provide more of this to help them out is is vital in having those conversations and everybody's going to grieve their um their loved one differently right you know as a son you know i definitely grieve you know, my parents before they were really 
in the middle of their mental illness. I grieve my sibling a lot different, you know, because, you know, I'm their older sibling and I don't want them to have to handle what, what I've gone through, but they do anyways. And so we're all dealing with grief, grief differently. Um, and there's, there's nothing wrong with that. All of our feelings are valid and it, it takes however time we need. Um, as long as we're, we're working towards that end game of, of, being the best court system we can and, and providing the best outcome we can um, is, 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 is important. Right. And what you're saying is either it reminds me a lot about, you know, August 3rd, because a lot of, of course, a lot of the work that we do is uh, people who were impacted directly or indirectly by August 3rd and really understanding and being an accepting of everyone's journey is very important, right? Um, so how does this relate to people that were impacted by August 3rd as well? Like, how can we provide support to someone that might be still feeling triggered, um, or that was impacted or that's still dealing with that grief of losing a loved one? So how does this, um, also relate to people impacted by August 3rd? When it comes to August 3rd and when we talk about the impact of the trauma individuals have, I think this is also important. Because we're all going to come to terms and grieve what happened August 3rd at different times. And we're going to do it at different at a different pace, um, especially those who, who lost a family member. You know, you can that grief will never go away. Um, and so I think it's just about, again, remembering where we're at, checking where we're at and, and identifying what we need to do going forward, what works, what doesn't work and, and keeping keeping on that and, and practicing that I think is, is very important. Um, but there's, there's no doubt that August 3rd had an impact on, on everybody, you know, and, and we have to remember that it'll take time and it'll take patience to heal. Um, and, and maybe we never will completely heal that it was such a huge thing to happen to our community. Um, but be okay with that and, and understand what we can do to, to continue going on. This is United and Resilient. We'll be right back. Hi, my name is Jorge Salgado. On August 3rd, 2019, I was the staff photographer for El Paso, Inc. On the morning of August 3rd, I remember being in the fast food line, getting breakfast with my brother, uh, just trying to get some food in me to fuel up for the day. I remember my cousin sending a link over from one of the news stations where uh, there had been reports of an active shooter in the Cielo East area. A lot of what goes through your mind in that moment uh, feels like doubt because being a part of this community, you, you really don't think that that's something that's going to happen. But as soon as we could get our food, drove over to Cielo Vista, had my cameras with me, my brother waited for me in the car. Uh, as we arrived, people were still being evacuated. All of the law enforcement agencies were Responding to Cielo Vista, lots of helicopters overhead. You can hear a lot of the whirring of the blades and, and it became pretty intense and became pretty real in that moment. I remember taking calls from national news outlets and sharing videos, all of which feel surreal and almost don't ever look back at those things. Later that day, we kind of gathered with the other news outlets over by the Cielo Vista Walmart. We stayed around for a while, trying to figure out what was happening. We went to the reunification center, which was at a school nearby. A lot of the neighbors 
help us, let us set up our gear, gave us water, let us use our internet. It was everything you would imagine that El Paso neighbors would be like. Went to a press conference still later that day. Nobody had any idea what was going on. Went to vigils that evening, which felt like they were weeks later. A lot of the moments uh, that were pretty pressed with sadness, like Javier's memorial at Horizon High School. It was pretty surreal to, to think of Javier, this young kid, just trying to get through high school, playing soccer with his friends. And there you are, walking through a sea of his friends and family. Nobody really understanding why anyone would do this to a young man who, who probably never heard a fly. Being at a, at a memorial like that really made it sink in. And it was probably one of the hardest events I've ever had to cover. Just seeing his parents, seeing his friends, uh, just heartbroken that this young man was gone and none of it felt real even days after. After August 3rd and, and even on the day of, I remember so much of the love and how much people were willing to be helpful and how much people were willing to love each other more. If El Paso wasn't already that small town feel, even though we're in a huge city, it got even tighter that day. It was such a great feeling knowing that everyone had each other's backs in spite of this tragedy. Although none of the moments of that day really feel great, people were resilient, people were strong, everybody was even more neighborly than they had been before. Everyone was so willing to love each other fully, and I hope and pray that El Paso continues to grow this way. forward um, with children. I know a lot of parents listen to this podcast, so I also want to make sure that we're discussing, you know, little children, our kiddos. Um, how can we start the initial conversation with children? I know that's uh, a little bit different. Um, how can we provide the correct support and what are some of the questions parents need to ask um, the children and themselves we have before they have this initial conversation? You, you know, it, definitely, you know, when it comes to mental health, it's so important that we can start these conversations with our kiddos in general, you know, always checking in on how we're doing with our mental health and how we're doing with our emotions. Growing up is is so, is, there's a lot that happens when we grow up and in this past year alone, you know, our kiddos have gone through so much with social distancing, having to do um having to do school from home and not being able to hang out with friends. And as parents and as guardians, I think it's important, like we mentioned earlier, is, is to let our kids even have some control in their, in their mental health, in their health, right? We don't want to take complete control from them and feel them, make them feel like they have no control in their lives and just checking in to see, you know, how are you doing? And, you know, I noticed that your grades have fallen off. What's happening? How can I be there to support? Or I noticed that you've been very distant. You haven't left your room in so long. What's going on? Is there anything I can do to help you? Uh, and also building a partnership with the school. You know, our teachers and, and their friends may see something different than what we see at home. 
Um, well, and that's when, of course, they're in school and saying, hey, you know, uh, you know, I noticed that my son has been going through this at home. Have you noticed any changes at school? Is there anything happening in school that I should know about um, that you can give me information on and do our best to get a big picture? And understanding what resources there are for our kiddos. You know, there's there may be resources at school that we could be able to take advantage of. There's definitely other resources within our community. And again, letting them know, you know, this, you know, making sure they don't feel um, you know, so abnormal, making feel that, that they're not crazy, that there's nothing wrong with them, you know. They're experiencing mental health challenges. It's common, one in five. Uh, kids in the U.S. will experience or experiencing a mental health challenge, and it's common and, and it's treatable. And you're gonna, you want to, as a parent, you know, again, that's that's another big thing we talk about, especially to, for our dad. You know, we talk a lot about it in our classes. Is you know, our dads want, you know, they they want to just make everything better for their family, and when they're experiencing. Um, when their child is experiencing a mental health challenge, it's particularly hard for the dads, but of course for the moms as well. And so, you know, understanding that and and being validating your feelings of frustration of, 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 you know, sometimes there may be guilt, you know, understanding that mental health conditions are nobody's fault. Um, there's nothing, there's nothing you could have done. Um, and now it's just a matter of what we do to, provide the best outcome we can for our child or for our children. And one of, one of the things that you said, Isidro, and it sparked um, a little thought in me um, is having the conversation and making those questions like, hey, you've been distant, you've been spending a lot of time in your room. And I immediately thought about our teenagers, like immediately, right? Because our teenagers are very good at, you know, just staying in their rooms and being in their own world. And and at the same time, I know they're dealing with a lot of things. You know, I, I think that my little sister just came out of her teenage years. So I know, I know that they're dealing with a lot. So, and their initial reaction is just closing the door even further, right? So how can we provide that same support with our teens understanding their own boundaries and their own bodies and a lot of things? So how can we go about this, the correct support for teens as well? Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt. I have a 16-year-old sister at home. There's no doubt there's a lot going on. And sometimes their reactions are a little much for the situation. Um, and that's definitely normal. Again, you're growing up, you're a teenager. There's a lot of moods. There's a lot of, of development happening that changes things. Uh, and I think, again, it's just having them have some control of, of their mental health and letting them know that you'll be there to support them um, and just checking in and understanding, you know, is this a symptom of, is this part of puberty? Is this part of them growing up? Or is this really getting in the way of their day-to-day? Is it really affecting our relationship? Is it really affecting their schoolwork? Because if it's getting into that, then maybe, hey, there's something else going on. Um, and you know, we know our kids and so we'll be able to identify that. And it's just a matter of, of keeping on top of that. And also, I mean, I have to say this is taking care of yourself, you know, being a parent is not easy. And, and sometimes it feels like you're fighting, um, a lonely battle, you know, and, and that's, that's okay. But make sure you take care of yourself. Don't feel guilty for taking care of yourself because you can't help anybody else. 
you don't help yourself first, and that's what we talk about in our classes when we talk to parents is we want to make sure that you're also mentally healthy because if you're mentally healthy, you'll be able um, to be there for your child, especially if they're experiencing mental illness. It, it, it takes it takes a village. Um, and so we, we definitely express that to our parents is make sure you're good too. And if you're not okay, that's okay. How are we going to make sure you're okay? Um, it's, it's, it's a long process. It's not easy, but we can do it. And there, there's hope and, the, and recovery is possible. Great. And actually, Cedro, you covered a little bit about my next question. And the, the next thing that I want to talk about is self-care, taking care of yourself and respecting your own boundaries when dealing with, you know, with trying to support your loved one and trying to support your kiddos can be difficult, right? So how can we also take care of ourselves and our emotions um, while taking care of others? How can we do that and not forget that self-care is so, so important? Yeah, you know, you have to really be kind to yourself. You know, remember that this is a, this is a process and remember that you are your helper. You're, you're helping them and you're, you're there for them. You're not a magician. You can't control. You can't change anybody else. You can only be there and provide support in any way possible. Um, you know, give them support give them praise, um, encouragement, and be there for them, but also give yourself time to be a hermit, you know, give yourself time to be alone, give yourself to sometimes to be in your room and, and be with your feelings and, and validate um, your feelings, you know, at times we'll feel helpless, at times, you know, we feel like we don't know what we're doing, and we feel like we're doing everything wrong, and, and those feelings are okay don't feel ashamed of those feelings, you know, as long, you know, remember at the end of the day, we're there, we're caring and, and we're doing our best and being there. And that's, what's important. Um, and just, you know, that, and that's what we have to do. And sometimes we have to vent and sometimes, you know, we don't want to vent because we're feeling like we're complaining, but there's a difference between complaining that relieves tension and complaining that reinforces it. And so being able to talk about, ugh, you know, I'm just so frustrated or, ugh, I just, I just, I'm just so angry and I just, I just wish things were different. You know, that's, you know, you're releasing that tension, you're releasing that energy and, and you're, you're letting it go and you're continuing on. That's so important in, in, in taking care of ourselves and in validating who we are. And like you said, having self-care, you know, I, you know, over the years, self-care has definitely increased you know we talk a lot about it more and more and maybe sometimes people are like oh my god self-care what is that you know i i don't have time to go to a massage or i don't have time to go to a spa i can't do self-care that's you know self-care is simple as going out for a walk or just taking a really really long shower if you haven't been able to in a long time or taking a bath or cooking yourself your favorite meal that you haven't been able to indulge or going to your restaurant your favorite restaurant by yourself and ordering your favorite meal. That's all part of self-care. These are positive strategies, coping strategies, healthy strategies that we can use to make our skills better in times when things don't feel good. Um, and, that, and that's super, super important. And, and we have to find self-care in ways that works for us, that are healthy for us and positive. And allowing yourself to feel those emotions, right? And I know you mentioned it because going a little bit back into my own experience when I was dealing with my loved one, dealing with depression, you know, I would 
try to make myself, you know, as strong and, you know, very centered and focused. But then those emotions of concern and sadness accumulated and then it was worse. Right. So really allowing yourself to to embrace yourself and to hug yourself and be like, hey, it's okay if you are you're sad by this, you know, because you love this person and you want the best for this person. So um, allowing yourself to to remove yourself from the situation a little bit and and cry if you need to and 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 bend, like you said, with someone. So that actually leads me to the next question. One of the things that I found in my own healing journey is support systems are like the best, the best. Like I, I, I always give credit to my friends because I believe that they are the best, best support system that I built for myself. So how can we build a support system? Yeah. I think the support systems look different for everybody, you know, and maybe it's a group of friends that we have, maybe it's a family member that we have, or maybe it's a support group that we're going to where we find support in others who are experiencing the same thing. And it's a matter of allowing our loved ones and ourselves to explore those and be open to those support systems and understand how beneficial they can be. Um, But also understanding that sometimes there's boundaries within these support systems, you know. We can't expect our supports too much out of our support systems where we're draining them and not also allowing them to be able to rely on your own support. Um, and so it's it's a two-way street and it's a matter of finding what works for you and where you're most comfortable and who you feel you can trust. Um, and, you know, sometimes this journey feels alone. You may have the biggest support system in the world and this journey feels alone, but we remember at the end of the day who we have behind us in this journey and, and, and we'll be all right. Great. Great. Thank you so much, Isidro. Now, my next question, I think it's very, very important because when you are in this situation, it's very easy to to lose track of your boundaries, right? Um, because you know sometimes you 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 are trying to support and 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 guide and help and love that you you forget about your own boundaries. So how can we establish boundaries while taking care of someone that's dealing with a mental illness? Yeah, you know, I, you know, I think that sometimes for people who have a loved one, I think that's scary for them, uh, establishing their boundaries. You know, they, they think, no, I have to be there for them 100%. I have to do everything I can in my power. But again, you, if you're emptying your glass, then you're never going to be able to fill it up. You're never able to be refill and, and, and be 100%. And so when we establish these boundaries, you know, while we know that mental health conditions have um, an effect on how we well, how we behave, on how we think, on how we feel, understanding that there's still, you know, there's still expectations, you know, there's still some things that are in their control and letting them know again, hey, you know, I know you're going through a lot, but I really would appreciate if you wouldn't do this anymore. I would appreciate if, if you respected this boundary and, and let me do this. Um, you know, we we have to learn to say no and mean it. Um, and if you can't say no, what, how much is your yes worth? Is it worth you um, really impacting your own mental health? Is it really worth that? Um, so, you know, we, we have to understand, again, where we're at, what do we need? What does this person need? Establish those boundaries and stick to those boundaries. And sometimes we might fall off the road and we might fall off the wagon, but coming back and saying no. These are my boundaries. This is what I won't do. This is what I will do. Um, 
and then you know this is how we're going to get through this and and remembering that at the end of the day you know you have to take care of yourself and that's something we've talked about throughout this podcast is just taking care of yourself first and foremost um to establish those boundaries and and have your loved one understand those boundaries um and boundaries don't have to be negative they'll definitely be a positive positive way in in whatever happens along the way and i just want our audience to know that we understand that it's hard like it's very easy like it's very easy to say it but it's very hard to do it and and like i know isidro you've been through through stuff like i know we all struggle with challenging our boundaries because I don't know if that's a cultural thing, um, but it's hard. It's hard to say no. And especially when it comes to dealing with someone you love so much and, and that you care so much for that person. But what I've learned, and, and it's something that you also mentioned, you know, you can't give what you don't have. So if you want to provide that love and support, you want to make sure that it's coming within so you also have to you know like a plant right you need to water yourself so like you said in uh, in the last question uh, allowing your yourself to to have those moments of self-care whatever that looks for you if that looks like going to your favorite restaurant or if that looks like an hour of reading whatever it is that self-care do it do it do it do it and and little by little you'll it will be easier to establish your boundaries if you will one of what are what are some of the services that nami provides that can aid a person as they navigate a mental illness of a loved one yeah definitely we have different courses that we we provide that we've been providing in over 35 years they've definitely changed and grown as we've learned more about mental health but they continue to be very vital in supporting um our loved ones and those who seek out our, our services. And so one of our more popular courses is our NAMI Family to Family course. It's an eight class course where we get into the nitty gritty of the science around mental health, because again, we want people to understand that mental health conditions are a medical condition in the same way that we live with asthma or diabetes or heart disease. Um, we have mental health conditions. And so we talk about that. We talk about the different medications and the treatments that are out there because it is definitely a, the healthcare system in itself is a scary thing to navigate and to go through. And so we do our best to make it less scary and, and understand what it is, is out there and what, what things mean. Cause there's definitely so many medical terms out there that it's hard for these families who are just coming into this journey and who are still coming to terms with it to really grasp it. So we do our best to explain it to them. We talk about, you know, how do we problem solve? You know, how do we communicate? Um, you know, we talk a lot about what we've talked about today. Um, how do we advocate for our loved one? You know, advocacy is so important. You know, once we have this information, we are now, you know, able to go out there and have conversations with other people maybe we wouldn't have before. Um, so it's a great class. You know, we share our experiences. This class is made up of family members of loved ones who have someone with a mental health condition, and we're sharing our stories, and we're understanding that it's okay. Whatever we're going through, whatever we're feeling, or whatever we're feeling is okay. We're going to get through it, and we're doing it together. We also have our NAMI Basics course, which is um, our course that is for parents and caregivers of young ones. Um, you know, mental health conditions, lifetime cases of mental health conditions, 50% begin by the age of 14 and 75% by the age of 24. 
So when we talk about these middle school, high school years and, and being there for our child, it's, that's a very huge developmental stage for them, especially when it comes to the possibility of them having a mental health condition. So in this course, we also get into the nitty gritty of it all. We also talk about their rights as parents and what they can do as parents. Um, because as they prepare for their child to become 18 and no longer having as much um, rights and power to them, we, we help them as they figure out that transition and, and do their best to continue to be support systems for their child as they go into their adult lives, um, which is a very scary thing um, and even scarier when we know that they're, they're having these challenges um, along with them. And we also have support groups. Our support groups, we have one every Tuesday and Thursday. Right now it's meeting virtual. We have one for um, those, the ones that we have every Tuesday and Thursday are for those who have a mental health condition. And so it's peers, right? Talking about what support groups and how it's so important to be able to share these experiences and understand that we're not alone. Uh, once a month, we have a family support group for our family members so that they can also be with other individuals and understand that they're not alone in their journeys with their loved ones. And we have presentations. We give them to organizations, to you know our local police department, sheriff's department, where our volunteers, our program leaders come out and share their experiences with with mental health conditions and do their best to instill empathy and understanding in our community so that we eliminate the stigma that surrounds mental illness. And I do have to say that all of our classes, all of our programs are led by and taught by volunteers who have been trained, who have personal experiences. And it is, they are at the core of our, what, you know, we're a grassroots organization, but they're, they're at the core of what we do and we couldn't do what we do without them. And so we're very, very grateful to our volunteers um, and we're open to anybody who wants to volunteer with us, who wants to help others who are going some going through something that they are, um, just reach out definitely and, and volunteering is another way of healing. It's definitely another way of self-caring because you feel good about, about volunteering and helping others. So um, yeah, we have, everything's on our website, mamiep.org. We have all of our listings. We do our best to offer our programs as often as we can. We do it um, based on the need of our community at that time. And so um, if anybody's ever interested, and then all of our programs are free. Thanks, thankfully to donors and, and funders who allow us to do this work, you know, our our programs are available both in English and in Spanish and at no cost to our community. Um, so we encourage anybody to take advantage of them when they can, um, because we, we find that they're, they're, they're life-saving and, and they're just full of wonderful information. Perfect, Isidro. Well, thank you so much. And if you'd like to receive more information as well, you can call our office and all of our information is in our description and we can make a referral to, to NAMI if you're interested as well. I know, like I said in the beginning, we have a great partnership with NAMI and our participants are able to join this courses and this webinars and workshops and support groups. So please reach out to our office if you're interested, if this conversation is something that you know relates to you or to your situation. We're more than happy. The FRC is full of helping hands that are willing to make those referrals and, and help you navigate the services NAMI is offering. So my last question would be, Isidro, and I asked this question to all of our guests, what is a message of hope you would like to give to our community? Yeah, so I think first and foremost, my message of hope is that there is hope, that there there is there is help out there. And, you know, when we feel hopeless and, and helpless, that remember that at the end of the day, 
you have a community that's with you and stands with you. Uh, you know, at the time of recording, we're doing this during Mental Health Month. And at NAMI, our campaign this month is hashtag not alone. And we started this campaign last year in the middle of, of the pandemic when, you know, social distancing and physical distancing made it hard to feel connected with our friends and family and our loved ones. And we continue that this year as we continue to heal and and, and start meeting in, in safer ways and being together in safest way, safer ways. And the message there is that, you know, you're not alone, you're connected, there's resources, there's individuals out there, there's agencies like the, the Family Resiliency Center, um, like NAMI, who will be there to support you in your journey and, and help you along the way. And so, you know, don't feel alone, we're, we're here for you and, and we can do anything, we can, we'll do anything we can to, to help you um, as you go along your journey. Well, that's beautiful, Isidro. Thank you so much. Thank you for being here at United and Resilient. We're very happy to have you as a guest today. Thank you so much for having me. It was great being here. Thank you so much for listening today. We hope this content serves you and your loved ones as well. If you enjoyed our podcast, please do not forget to subscribe and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at El Paso United FRC to learn more about our commitment to the community's long-term recovery. Please join us on the next episode.